0: Hello, and welcome to the C21 Podcast. My name's Nico Franks. We hope you're safe and well, wherever you may be. Today, we hear from Anouk Mertens, Managing Director at Neo Studios, about the future of watching live sports from home, as well as its documentary series, Take Us Home, Leeds United, which charts the famous English football club's historic return to the Premier League. And Laura May Coop, co-founder at Social Life, which is used by all the major streaming platforms, to drive interest around their shows on social media, and recently won an Emmy for its work on the Netflix cult hit Big Mouth. Neo Studios is a sport and lifestyle programming production company that's part of the Acer Ventures Group that's owned by Andrea Radrazani, the chairman of English football club Leeds United, who recently returned to the Premier League after 16 long years. The final part of that journey is charted in neo studios documentary take us home leeds united and i caught up with the podcast md Anouk mertens to discuss partnering with amazon on the dock as well as the future of watching live sport at home amazon has just released the two episodes covering the most recent season for Leeds United and full disclosure I'm a Leeds United fan so I've watched those two episodes already and obviously had a big interest in those in terms of when you're producing a a documentary about a football team how important is it to appeal not just to the core fans of that football team but also football fans in general
1: I think when uh, we started out uh, with this project we always looked at it in trying to uh, make a story that would appeal to as broad as possible audience not only to Leeds fans obviously they have a special interest in what happens to the club but also to a broader sports fan and that's also why looking at the different angles that we used in the series the sport aspect is there of course but you have a big part which is the boardroom the business of running a football club the fans the cultural link to a city like Leeds and how important it is and what role that a club plays within a city so with getting those different elements and we try to open up the story and and getting feedback from football fans especially on the business part of saying well you read about it in the newspapers and you read about transfers but you don't really understand how it actually happens and when something goes wrong and how wrong so as we have seen in season 1 but also um the the passion that people can have for a club and how it affects them and their lives i think that's something that is portrayed by the fans that we have followed and appeals I think to a broader audience who is passionate about anything being a club or or, or any other uh, thing
0: in terms of the showing the behind the scenes obviously this is one of the few documentaries that shows how the pandemic impacted the recent football season so Mm. how did the pandemic affect the documentary as well
1: yeah obviously it it, it's is a big thing in, in in the series because it just, in general, was a big thing in, in in football in general for the club as well. And obviously, when you start producing a series like this, you try to plan as much ahead as you can. You look for the right characters, you plot the storylines, but you can never imagine what's going to happen during a season. Obviously, you know, these games are more important than others I we put more camera crews there and and, and, and stuff like that. But, but when the pandemic hit, it was... We really didn't know, like nobody knew what was what was going to be next. was football coming back? What would happen to the documentary? Should we just stop and and throw everything away? Was there even a story to be told uh, going forward? So we decided to to continue to keep filming, and it's it, we were there and, and especially, I think for us, it was very valuable being with Angus, you know, getting his insights and and really on at the moment understanding what, Nobody knew and he didn't know what he was gonna do. And and, and getting that feeling was, was very important. And now looking back at the empty streets of Leeds and and that I think are very powerful images and also showed how desolated everything was. And and for us it it made a big part of, of the story and we we really wanted to tell that. And, and and I'm glad we did. So and then when football came back in a different way, obviously made us think for how do we, you know, continue and how do we wrap this up. So, um, yeah, it was challenging, but at least I think we we are glad we didn't stop and continue to shoot.
0: Tell me about the partnership with Amazon and how that works, because obviously they've got their football brand, I guess, franchise, all or nothing. So how does it fit in with that? And also, I understand the documentary is also available for broadcasters to acquire. So how did that deal work out in terms of Amazon not necessarily wanting exclusivity?
1: When we started out two years ago, and I think we... From a production point of view, we had decided to to make this documentary because we felt that it was an interesting story to to be told with Andrea acquiring the club, Bielsa coming in as a trainer. uh, You felt that things were moving and changing and we felt it was an excellent opportunity to portray the coming season. After that decision, we we engaged with a conversation with Amazon saying, well, we are going to make this story and it's called Take Us Home because we believe that Leeds is on his way home. And and are you interested? So we had uh, some very good sessions with Amazon on on that. They also were involved in just following, you know, from a creative point of view. Uh, So it was a very close communication with them. So getting their inputs and and we, we kept them informed every step of the way. So the first season we launched on the key territories of Amazon exclusively. And when we, we continued to shoot for the the two of that we, we launch now in this season, we felt that it was important for us to have a non-exclusive window on all episodes. So we agreed that it would be exclusive to the UK, but uh, outside of the UK, it's, it's worldwide on Amazon. So we we broadened the scope on Amazon, but it's also available to, uh, to other broadcasters non-exclusively outside of, of the UK for us it was important to uh, make it as broadly available as possible also for the club um, and and that is the reason why we, we side for that model
0: are those discussions with broadcasters they have they already begun is there any any deals you can tell me about
1: uh yes yes we have for sure i know that uh it's available on espn in in Latin America, super sport in south africa it's in scandinavia um so finland denmark sweden um we did a deal in holland with zigo there are deals coming in almost every day now yeah. um, which is great it's important to to get it out to you know the Leeds fans but also broader fans outside of uh, the UK
0: and we're seeing football documentaries evolve from being fly on the wall documentaries where you see the warts and all failures of certain football clubs and their demise to them being a lot more polished and a bit almost like advertorial or adverts for the football Mm -hmm. club. What's the balance you look to strike in between making sure that the documentary isn't seen as an advert for a club, given that the company you work for is the production arm of the company that also owns Leeds United?
1: I think we had some extensive and honest discussions at the beginning of the shooting two years ago. Because to be honest, the club and Angus wasn't really keen on us doing a documentary, which which I understand their business is not being <laughs> uh, actors, and they just want to you know perform on, on on the soccer field. So which 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 we got. I think we we had lengthy discussions on what. To portray and uh, what we felt was important, because for us from a documentary point of view, and regardless of any link, we wanted to tell an interesting and an honest story. And if that means that there, well, you know, there are going to be setbacks in the season, and you know that things can go wrong, and we uh, said well, we're only going to do this if we are allowed as well to portray that, because we are not in this to make just a promotional story. And and and, on, and also, as I said before, in in that construction of those storylines, Amazon was involved as well and we had we had very open discussions. i think we, this is an interesting storyline and if we had the whole spygate thing happening obviously we had and then james transfer that went wrong and we'll say ah, do, do we want to show this and so, yes we need to show this because this is what makes it an interesting story and you shouldn't look at it as failure but at least people would understand how it actually works and that you really try to make it work but it didn't. And that's even more valuable than just cutting that kind of story out. And so it 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 has been a constant debate. I think we think it's important to be there also when, when things get tough. And obviously season one ended in dramatically for the club. But in all honesty and Angus doesn't like be saying this is from a documentary point of view, it's the best Ending you could have knowing where we are now, of course, and and it was tragic, but it was also very, I think, very beautiful and very emotional. And I mean, I'm not, I'm not a leads, I wasn't a leads fan, uh, but it made me cry as well because you feel the passion of everybody and the the resilience of everybody standing up again after such a film and saying we're gonna do this again. And and I think that makes it for me a beautiful story. And and although most of the people in the club didn't want to watch the the last episode, they only watched it now. knowing what what the what the result was of of the second season, but it's it's it made it a balanced story. and and I think that that for me, personally it was, was important that we were able to do so and and for Andrea basically nothing was off limits on the contrary so he's a very open person and so you come in and film anything you want so. tell me
0: about Neo Studios strategy in general so how are you looking to work with TV companies and other sports companies
1: yeah, we are a fairly new production company and, and, and Leeds is uh, one of our first bigger projects that we've done obviously we produced we call 360 formats for sports or channels, There's a program called Mission Messi, about a jo- young journalist on his mission to actually interview Messi, which lived on, on on Facebook, social media, and then evolved into a full-length documentary. What we tend to focus on is try to tell good human stories. Obviously, we are doing a lot of sports content but it's not about the sports it's always about you know the people involved in and and they are the one they are the ones that make you and enable you to tell interesting stories and when there was the thing that we did on Messi it's all about this young guy who has this big dream in getting to Messi and it's all about him and not about Messi actually (laughs) and if you look at the Leeds documentary it's about the fans it's it's Victor it's Angus it's all those people who are so passionate about getting this club where it belongs, that makes it interesting. In I think in any story that we want to tell, we are looking for that angle. One of our next projects, we're going to do a documentary on sumo in Japan, but we're going to follow the non to so the Hawaiians that became big in sumo uh, in Japan. And, and there are some really interesting and very tragic stories uh, we, told, we told from those persons, not for the sport, but how they lived it and, and, and became who they who they became in, in, in sumo. So um that's what Neo is and that's what we want to do in the future.
0: And take me through how the pandemic is affecting deals for sports rights because I remember at the beginning of pandemic in March, speaking to analysts. This was when sport had had to stop and there were real worries about people cancelling their TV subscriptions because of the lack of live sport. But obviously we've seen football, among many other sports, being able to find a way of going ahead. And it seems to be, touch wood, a workable solution to showing live football games, but obviously imperfect without the crowds being in there. How long do you think that can continue and how is the lack of crowds impacting the value of sports rights?
1: No, that was a very good question. <laughs> um, look, because I'm, I'm obviously with my 11 sports hat on involved in, in a lot of the, the complexity and, and the consequences we had to deal with during during COVID, because when all life GameStop. And when you are a platform that lives and pays on subscriptions on live sports, obviously you have a problem. And, and what we tried to do during that time is actually try to be creative, not only you know on, on reruns and, and repackaging content that we had, but also focused a lot on esports. So we had a lot of esports events that were also well-received. And, and from that perspective, we did a lot of esports across all the territories that we, we were active in. And this also became a big part of our future strategy. So we're building a vertical around around esports uh, in, in general. Obviously, we were very happy when when live sports returned, and we felt as well from our fans that they were really longing to get to get live sports back. Obviously, there are a lot of techniques to get the ambience there and and just make it feel and sound a bit uh, like there is a crowd, but it's it's it, well, it's different, and 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 you notice that. Has this an effect on? On the value of sports, I think it's, it's it's very difficult to say. I think what we learned from this period is that we need to look at the model in general differently, which means that obviously today it's the broadcaster or the platform that carries all the risk and you pay a lot of money for rights, they fall away and then obviously you have nothing to offer you to, to your subscribers. I think we need to go for a more balanced model where we share the risk between rights holders, clubs, platforms, uh, and so and and that is something that we definitely will support in the future and and will affect how rights are valued i think
0: so in the sense that you balance them out with the football teams or the the kind of uh yeah i guess the equivalent of like the fa
1: yeah the the leagues the rights agencies in between i mean it's i don't think it's okay if we have a lack of rights and our subscribers say, well, we are no longer wanted to subscribe, that we continue to carry the full risk on those rights because some rights orders just came back and said, well, OK, we don't have any any rights that we've given you. We're still charging you technical costs, and rights Because was like going, this is a weird way of looking at it. But I think, I think this needs to be more balanced and I think a lot of people feel that way. So it will be very interesting to see what's going to happen in the next months and years on on, on that whole ecosystem and how that that's going to evolve and going to work because we, we, we can't predict what's going to happen, but for sure, the, the thing that we have learned is that we can't be sure of anything in the future.
0: And so crowd noise is uh, one of those aspects you mentioned in terms of the am- recreating the ambience. Are there any other technological innovations we can come to explore? Further down the line, if crowds aren't able to to get into football games in future,
1: and some of the things that we have done a lot in in Belgium, Portugal, for example, is add another layer. Which we call watch together. It's it's you could create your own virtual living room with with fans and your family and friends and watch a game together, which gives you, although everybody at home, a different way of engaging with each other and, and supporting a team. So from a purely technological point of view, I think that's an interesting way of looking at it and it worked quite well for us. Uh, so we have lots of living rooms being being created and, and also gives you the opportunity to add in celebrities or, you know, that kind of stuff. So it, it's, it's an interesting experience. It's a different experience, but at least you offer an alternative for people who want to watch together from their, their living room.
0: UK and US-based social media agency Social Life recently won its first Emmy for its work on the Netflix series Big Mouth, the animated coming-of-age comedy about a group of kids going through puberty. Social Life produced an interactive program for Netflix called Big Mouth's Guide to Life that was released on Instagram Stories over a three-month period. Big Mouth's Guide to Life spoke directly to teenagers about going through puberty, a time of life that's not often addressed in mainstream media, covering topics like physical development consent, toxic masculinity and mental health. Laura May Coop, co-founder at Social Life, spoke to me about the importance of social media to a show's success on streaming platforms and why speaking with an authentic voice online is key to striking a chord with young people.
2: I'm Laura May Coop. I'm the co-founder of Social Life, uh, which is now part of the Jellyfish Group. And we started Social Life six years ago. I started it with my BBC Radio 1 colleague, Alistair Parrington. And uh, we realised there was a giant gap a creative studio just focusing on social. It was all done by PR companies adding a social arm or digital agency, not really understanding what social was, you know, how to do it properly. So um, yeah, we jumped ship from the BBC where we got to learn so many valuable lessons. We took the the social audience from you know thousands to millions during our time there neither of us came from an agency background so we just did things the way we thought they should be done and um yeah that was quite revolutionary for many people I'm a LGBTQ plus founder and naturally I attracted people within the LGBTQI community and we always approach whatever project we're working from in a two-pronged approach one is innovation and reward so we always look for what's next or what's coming up or what we can possibly do within the constraints of social media and not just because we can but because you know it's useful and rewarding and offers some value for the social audience and uh, we also operate on a policy of authenticity so when we're working on a pride campaign for Netflix there'll be queer producers at the heart of that campaign so we can speak from an authentic position for that audience online. Uh, We can speak with passion and knowledge and research. You know, for instance, when we're working on a show called Atypical, which is another Netflix original, we um, provide a team that includes autistic members so they can speak with real knowledge and experience. And uh, that's really important to us. Uh, We work with uh, entertainment clients predominantly and uh, we've launched over 90 plus Netflix shows in our six years. And also we work with Apple and Hulu and Disney Plus and Amazon Prime. So a few small names that you may have heard of.
0: It's really about that tone of voice And that authentic tone of voice, because I suppose the audience that you're targeting, that young demographic, can sniff out inauthenticity very quickly.
2: Yeah, yeah, it completely seemed uh, natural for us even six years ago. I know it's a lot more heightened conversation around the topic of diversity and inclusivity right now, but it was just natural to us. So we didn't shout about it, we just did it. And, you know, obviously we attracted clients that also valued authenticity, such as Netflix, that we've become one of their. Top three global uh, suppliers in terms of social.
0: You recently won an Emmy for your work uh, with Netflix on Big Mouth for the in the outstanding <laughs> derivative interactive That's program. Um, so tell me a bit about your work there.
2: Yeah. Um, firstly, you know. Um, the thanks and congratulations go to my team led by Abigail Bauf and uh, also to the Netflix, uh, the Netflix clients, Kurt Graver and also to um, the Big Mouth creators, Nick Roll and Andrew Goldberg. And what we realise really is that we've had the relationship with Big Mouth since uh, season one, before it got a bigger audience, before it really got this cult following. And um, we've always tried to mirror the show Themes and topics, and bring them to life across social, not only to bring them to life, but to go a step further to offer interactive features on Instagram, on Twitter, you know, on YouTube. I remember for series one, for the launch project, we built. Physically in California, uh, the world's biggest uterus. And uh, that was quite cool, uh, all using uh, natural materials that are still there, I, I think. And uh, yeah, for season three, uh, we really got a chance to go a level deeper with the characters, with something that kept coming back to us from the social audience is that. Big Mouth was in a way providing them with sex education and we noticed that as a theme and we thought you know that's not good enough you know we need to do something more because so many people are asking for more education around around that subject and um, we noticed through research that in the USA fewer than 40 percent of high schools and one in six middle schools teach all the uh, appropriate sexual health topics and that was quite shocking to us. Us, you know, um, I don't know why, because you know, so many of the social audience were telling us that, and I, I don't know the stats for the UK, but I believe it's something similar. And uh, we found a real gap for honest, inclusive sexual education. That was the real start of the Big Mouth Guide to Life, and uh, we decided to create this kind of book that is accessible to anyone that uses Instagram, that's open, that's interactive, and that's really driven. By the themes from Big Mouth and the characters that are going through these puberty issues, yeah, it was huge. And the Instagram series engaged with you know millions of um, fans.
0: Yeah, Big Mouth is such an interesting show because obviously, on first appearances, it's a it's a comedy, but it does really have a lot of heart and, like you were saying, a lot of sex education content. And it's it's interesting how um, I've been writing a lot about the kids' TV industry, and there's always been a desire from the children's broadcasters to to cover the subject of puberty, but they've never really been able to do it in a kind of cool way, I suppose, because kids are always gonna get turned off as soon as they see something associated with a, you know, a children's broadcaster doing having that conversation with them. But Netflix, I suppose, because of its cool cachet, is able to have those conversations.
2: Yeah. And I think Big Mouth in particular is even more capable of having those conversations due to its characters being 13, 14, going through the issues that young audiences are going through and uh, making it so fun, but also making it so sensitive and responsible. And yeah, that was a big thing for us. We didn't want to lecture, we didn't want to go on a boring Note for such a fun show, but we wanted to get that messaging responsibly correct and invite an open conversation around, you know, topics like consent and sexuality.
0: And social media obviously has come in for a lot of criticism for for its impact not just on children but adults as well. So how do you approach that when you're when you're working with platforms in terms of wanting to make sure that you're you're approaching social media in a healthy way?
2: Well, I don't think you can really separate social media from life, really. You know, it has its good points, it has its bad points just like life. And we approach each show from you know a case-by-case basis and we produce the social media for a show a launch a movie a game by applying the same methods you know we provide passionate authentic voices and we always provide some kind of next level that you can't get from the movie, game, TV show. And we always try to be playful, to interact with people in a meaningful way, to create those connections that people value. And regardless of the demographic, we always try to show them something that they haven't seen before, which you know creates joy and delight and surprise. And uh, we are renowned for that around the world. And um, yeah, it's, it's great.
0: And do you have an insight into how platforms like Netflix and others that you work for value social media in the sense that it will potentially be the difference between renewing a show for a third season and it being cancelled after a second season depending on how well it's doing on social media.
2: They certainly do value uh, social audiences because it's so close to the natural organic audience and the crossover is extreme. You know with the Guide to Life you know we did a sentiment analysis and um, talked to lots of fans and almost 7,000 fans said that the Guide to Life helped them to spark a conversation with a loved one. You can't really put a value on that because it's so important that people go away with this, not just as a disposable exercise in scrolling through Instagram or Twitter, but actually taking it into the real world with their friends and family and making a difference. I think that that we always try and strive for that difference and that is certainly something that Netflix and you know other broadcasters value
0: and broadcasters are desperate to engage more and more with young viewers which they've seen kind of disappear from from their services in recent years. To what extent is it as simple as hiring an agency like yourself to draw in potentially younger viewers, or is it the content that has to come first and they have to change the kind of content that they're producing?
2: I think that's a very good question and multi-layered in my response. And I think that historic broadcasters, um, we work with, you know, loads of traditional broadcasters as well as the streaming services, uh, you know, the, the recently launched ones. And um, yeah, It has to start with great content, which obviously no one goes out to make bad content and um, no one goes out to make a bad show. But it's a balance, I suppose. Once the content is there, then we, an agency like ours or a social media team in-house, can pull out the moments that they think will be fire starters online and make complimentary content around those moments. Even when this season is off air, because young viewers in particular like to binge watch the show maybe in the first day. So we know that people will not watch an episode a week unless they're forced to and that tends to weaken the passion the fandoms around those shows but what we can do is extend the narrative is do things like big mouth guide to life or any of the other shows that we produce socially we can pick out the characters the themes the topics and apply those to other storylines that sit adjacent to that aren't exclusive to and uh make them into characters that you carry with you, not just you see for an hour a week.
0: Laura May Coop from Social Life. That's all for this episode. There'll be more from the podcast tomorrow, but in the meantime, stay safe and stay up to date with all the latest developments by following C21 online, on mobile and on social media. Thanks for listening.